Daniel 4. Uh, let me just read. We're going to probably try it. We're going to get up to probably verse 18 tonight. And that will take us up through. I mean, there's a ton in here. And, and I don't want to get bogged down with too much detail. But um, obviously we can't get through the whole chapter. But we'll get through the part here um, where Daniel literally gives this benediction to people, not Daniel, where Nebuchadnezzar gives this benediction to people and really points to, quote-unquote, the Most High. And then he talks about this dream he had. So let me, if you don't mind, I'm just going to read it uh, up through probably verse 18. Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. We'll come back to that. Peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are His signs, and how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they, may, they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream. But they did not, they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last Daniel came before me, his name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, in him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you, and no secret troubles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation." These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was flat fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree, cut off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it, and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts. On the grass of the earth, let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in 
the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation. Since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able to the spirit of the holy God is in you. <coughs> um, fascinating, isn't it? And did you notice the subtle change when it talked about the tree? All of a sudden it started referring to the tree as him. Yeah. yeah. He, isn't that fascinating? Well, let's go through this. I'm not in your way? No. Okay. So, Nebuchadnezzar's pride leads to humbling. And this is fascinating because, I mean, if you stop to consider it, Nebuchadnezzar was probably the greatest king of all the earth at that time. And as far as he was concerned, this is going to do this seven times now. <laughs> so, as far as Nebuchadnezzar was concerned, he was the most powerful being on the earth. He understood that. The people under him and in his charge, his servants and every people everywhere also knew that. He had the power of life and death in his hand. And so, he really had unlimited power. As I've talked about before, this man could make the rules that he himself did not have to follow. Today, we call that being a hypocrite. But for him, that was, that was perfectly legitimate. Everyone understood that Nebuchadnezzar could make rules that he was exempt from. So in that respect, you can kind of understand why he was not necessarily a humble person. He knew he had unlimited power. And even though God had already tried to tell him, um, you're in a position you're in because I put you there. I allow you to be here. Still, Nebuchadnezzar was like, yes, but there must be something about me that also is worthy of me being in this position. So he wasn't getting the picture. So God sends this dream. It's really fascinating. How old was he at this time? Oh, he was, it was much later in life. I, Daniel was probably older. I don't know the exact. Well, I, I believe it. When he was a young man. Like five, 575? Yes. I believe it was towards the end. It was, yes. Of his. See, he died in 562, I believe it was. Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar. Right, and so then Daniel would have been close to his 70s or 80s by now. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was a ways up there. And it's amazing how this book skips over huge sections, chunks of time. Yeah. So in Daniel 1 to 3, we see an increased appreciation. We see, we see Nebuchadnezzar here starting to appreciate Yahweh. He had not heard of Yahweh before Daniel. And then because of Daniel, and then especially because of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he has become very familiar with Yahweh's power. And so as a polytheistic person, a person who worshipped many gods, he now saw... Yahweh as the most high God of all the gods. Yeah. But
but he was still a polytheist. He didn't quite understand, and who can blame him? I mean, this was the ancient Eastern mysticism and thought at those days. So he, he had an increased appreciation for Nebuchadnezzar, but he also had a lot more to learn because of his own pride. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was all that. And who was going to tell him he wasn't? Yeah. If you're going to tell him he wasn't, you better be able to back it up. So he needed to learn, and this is so fascinating about God, because here's God looking at this Gentile ruler and deciding to teach him a few very important lessons about pride versus humility, and also, ultimately, about Yahweh himself and God's own power over all of his creation. He didn't have to do that, but he did that. I think that that's fascinating. So he needs to learn that God and God alone is sovereign over the affairs of humanity, and that includes all kings, and that includes Nebuchadnezzar. So you can see why that would be a hard lesson for him. I mean, he was an older man at this time. He was on the downside of his life. And think about all the years he had grown up under his father, Nabopolassar, and he saw what his father had done and how he had conquered and conquered and conquered and made himself a great nation and he made himself a great name. And Nebuchadnezzar was living and grew up under that protective um, envelope, so to speak. And he learned a lot from just watching his father. So all of his life, he was steeped in this military might and military outlook on life and conquering people and in increasing the size of your kingdom. So naturally, when he took over from his father, he just continued that. So that's what he had done all of his life. And God steps into his life, basically, and he says, you know what, though? I'm going to teach you a few things. You're not all that. I'm all that. You're not. And I'm going to teach you that. And it's just really kind of fascinating. God didn't have to do that at all because Nebuchadnezzar wasn't Jewish, for one thing. Yeah. His main concern, God's main concern, was Israel and how he would use Israel to spread his word and his truth and how often, of course, they failed him. But here he is taking time out for a godless Gentile king. So Daniel chapter 4 sets forth several lessons that Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn. And, you know, really, we need to learn the same ones. Honestly, we all do. Uh, to, to one degree or another. He was the sovereign of his day over all Gentile kingdoms, including Israel. Including Israel. He already knew that. But God proves that he is sovereign over even that. That was one thing that Nebuchadnezzar never considered. Because he went in and conquered Israel, he thought, that was the mindset then, well, my God is much greater than Israel's God. Otherwise, Israel's God would not have allowed me and my God to conquer them. So to prove how great we are after conquering them, we're going to take all their stuff all the vessels from the, uh, the temple and all the riches, and we'll just put it in the storehouse here because that proves that my God is more powerful. So then God has to prove to, or decides to prove to Nebuchadnezzar that he is sovereign, not Nebuchadnezzar. And isn't that something we have to learn? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's hard. That's really hard for us. 
It's it's harder for some people. It's harder for me than it is for my wife, because I'm not the most humble person in the world. Maybe my wife is neither, but she's far more humble than I am. So, when God has to deal with someone like me, it, it, the lesson becomes harder for me because I have a little bit more pride and ego involved in it that God has to get through before He can help me figure out, oh yeah, God, you're sovereign in this situation too. Yeah, okay, I get it. Now, ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar's humbling Honestly, if we look at the whole picture here, we look at the Babylonian Empire and how it rises and becomes, at its zenith, one of the most powerful empires that ever existed. <clears throat> and then how it basically dies a brutal death through Nebuchadnezzar's grandson when Darius the Mede is outside the gates, and we'll get to that. And they have that big banquet and they're using all the vessels that were taken from Israel's temple, etc., etc. But ultimately, this whole thing paints a picture of, of the humbling that will visit the world at the physical return of our Lord. Now, what's amazing here is, think about this. The world is going along right now. It's becoming more godless and more godless and more godless. I mean, you know, I won't get into it, obviously, too much, but you've got Abortion, what they're doing in places like Canada, they're just going way beyond the bounds of decency at all. Um, transgenders, the whole thing, everything is being, everything is being turned upside down. Yeah. Everything. And take that one more, the Pope. Yeah. Oh yeah. That you know, he fired the the I read about bishop. That. In Texas, yeah, Tyler, Texas. Reason he fired him? He was too conservative. Too conservative. He on, on, on the bishop's Facebook page, he he talked about you know. Uh, he was talking against transgender. Trans, trans. He was dressing transgender. Yep. Uh, and how bad it was. Yep. Abortion. Yep. And the Pope said, "You don't need to be talking about that." You, you need to be more concerned about immigrants and transgender and homosexuality. Yeah. Well, and then we just know that what the Pope also um, said, no, it's fine to give, uh, to baptize transgenders yeah. and children of, you know. The whole thing here is that we're moving further and further away from biblical truth and morality. <laughs> and it's in the highest place that in the Catholic Church, at the Pope, yeah. is, is preaching everything that God says you're not supposed I know. to do. I know. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't no understand why, why God don't <coughs> just snap his finger and yeah, he's uh, turn his lights out. 20 or 30 years, long time before he was the Pope. Yeah, he hasn't gotten this radical. Well, he was a cardinal in South America, uh, and he was preaching the same thing. Well, the reality is, why doesn't God deal with that now? The same reason he doesn't deal with a lot of things, because he allows it to play out, because there's something that he wants to occur for his will to take place. But the difficulty for us, though, is that, you know, it was kind of like Mark was talking today. We're, we're sitting in this world, we're Christians, we're trying to be the light, and yet everywhere we're looking, it's darker and darker and darker. Darker. And so that's difficult. But imagine this world 
Imagine this world, how shocked they will be yeah. when one day he physically returns. Yeah. I mean, imagine that. And then all of a sudden it's going to be, when Christ physically returns, he will overthrow every human government and set up his own. So, I mean, you know, what we're seeing right now will ultimately all play into that. So he will destroy every human government. The only government that will exist from that point on once he returns is the one he rules over. And that will include the entire earth. So it's fascinating. So John Walvoord um, said, The contest between God and Nebuchadnezzar is a broad illustration of God's dealings with the entire human race and especially the Gentile world in its creaturely pride and failure to recognize the sovereignty of God. Everywhere we look today, everywhere, whether it's the Pope, whether it's whatever, it doesn't matter, whether it's this transgender group or that gay group or this atheist group or BLM or that, every group we can see, it's a, it's a group of creaturely pride failing to recognize God's sovereignty. And really, <clears throat> that's the whole problem with Nebuchadnezzar. He was at one point willing to say God is the Most High because he didn't know any other God bigger than this God. But he was not willing, he was not willing to say that this God, the Most High God, Daniel's God, is fully sovereign over all the earth. He wasn't able or willing to say that. So God said, no, 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 you will say that. You will get to that point. I'm going to help you get there. Whether you come kicking and screaming, or I have to drag you, you'll be there. So Daniel 5, when we get there, proves this when we see Babylon's fall by Darius the Mede, and that's when Bel uh, Belshazzar is having his big party, and they're all drinking out of the vessels dedicated to the Lord, etc. And then another gentleman said, Daniel 4 provides one of the Bible's greatest lessons about pride. I mean, in the entire Bible, this lays it out clearly, particularly for those who look at their own accomplishments and give themselves all the credit. It's just absolutely amazing to me. Of course, Jesus alludes to this kind of thing when he talks about the person who uh, built up his, his farm and made new silos and filled them with food, and now he said, okay, now I got it all done. I can eat, drink, and be merry. And then all of a sudden it's like, you fool. Mm -hmm. Tonight your soul is required of you. Mm -hmm. My wife and I were watching this short documentary on television the other day on the five most expensive mansions of Hollywood that no longer exist. <clears throat> and it was absolutely fascinating. Because when these people in those days, in the 1930s... And some like, were even earlier. Than yeah, that. and even earlier. But Buster Keaton in the 30s built a humongous mansion that at the time cost $300,000 and in today's money would probably be three to eight million. I have no idea. But yeah. a lot of money. And I'm thinking to myself... Why? They built this mansion, they lived in it, kind of. but then, kind of, but then their fame began to wane, their money began to not flow in as much, they couldn't afford the upkeep, and they either lost it or sold it, and now it's just gone. It's gone. So people, you know, we, we, it's hard for us to see beyond this. 
This benediction in the first part of the thing that I read, I, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to all peoples and languages, nations, etc., that dwell on the earth. Well, he says this is a whole benediction from verse 1, 2, and 3, how great are his signs. He's trying to acknowledge God most high, and, um, but he puts it in the context of what God has done for him, yeah. where he says in verse 2, these are the signs and wonders that the most high God has worked for me. He doesn't say that God has worked for himself to give himself glory. He has worked this stuff for me. How great are his signs? How mighty his wonders? So this benediction to the entire world, and that's what this letter is literally addressed to, the people, everybody in the world, it proves that he was the ruler of the day. In his favor, he extolled the greatness of God Most High, Yahweh. But again... I want to remind us that his use of the term most high simply means that that was the highest God he knew about. There could be others that he didn't know about. So he's trying to be as respectful as possible, but he's not going far enough. Though Nebuchadnezzar had great respect for Yahweh, it doesn't mean at this point he was a monotheist and threw out all of his other gods. He was still a polytheist. So the king's praise of Yahweh opens and closes this chapter. We haven't read the ending yet, but we'll get there. So this dream likely came during the later years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, as we kind of already established here. Historians note, by the way, this is very interesting, there were actually seven years here during his later years when he did not engage in any military campaigning. And this was something that kings in those days did all the time. Uh, remember from Second uh, Samuel 11, I think it is, it talks about the fact that in the spring, when kings went to war, who stayed home? David, which got him in big trouble yeah. with a woman named Bathsheba yeah. and her husband Uriah. Um, so it was, it was just on every spring, you would go out and you would fight these armies. Well, there was a seven-year period where Nebuchadnezzar did not do any of that. So some historians believe that that could be the seven-year period that is talking about this and what happened. Where he, he was the animal. And where he, yeah, was, he, he lived he, in the fields. Eating grass with the cows. Yes, and his nails got really long. And, oh. <laughs> so this may have been those seven years. It's also possible that it was during this time that the king had the hanging gardens built because that would have taken a long time as well. He may have felt so safe that he didn't need to bother dealing with any other nation or empire, so why bother? I'll just focus on what's going on at home. And he built the hanging gardens and other beautifications. We have no idea what they really looked like. I wish we did. They were described as something totally beautiful and out of this world. So, verse 4 says, um, I was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. And then he sees this dream. The dream made him, made him afraid and troubled him greatly, just like the first dream. And be freaky. I'm sure all the details of his dream were remembered. He called all the wise men and demanded they provide the interpretation. <coughs> this is funny because they, the first time, remember, he said, all right, you're going to tell me what I dreamed, and then you're going to tell me the interpretation. And they're like, nobody can do that. Tell us the dream, we'll tell you the interpretation. No, not doing that. You're going to tell me the dream, then you're going to tell me the interpretation. So they went through all that rigmarole, and Daniel was able to solve the issue. Here, 
He did not demand that they tell him what he dreamed. Yeah. He was going to tell them what he dreamed. Apparently he trusted them enough, or he knew that Daniel would come through. Yeah. So this time, he tells them the dream, he just wants an interpretation. That shouldn't be too hard. That's what I'm paying you people for. You're my wisest men in this uh, kingdom of mine, so you really ought to be able to come through with this. Well, they couldn't do it. I, thought, I think that is interesting. What I find even more interesting is there is not even recorded in here an attempt yeah. of them to offer anything. It was almost like God shut their mouths. He wouldn't let them speak or something. They couldn't do anything. So Daniel comes in. He's finally called. And I'm not sure where Daniel was. He's probably off taking care of business. He has very high position in the government at this time. And um, so anyway, he comes in and he begins to tell, he will tell him the dream. But, um, or the meaning of the dream. But now, we're going to know what the dream is. He dreams of a great tree. In the midst of the earth, its height was great. It grew to great heights and became very strong. You know, it's funny. We walk across the road on her 13 acre, 1,300 acres, and we've known her before she passed, of course. And so she was always very charitable and saying, oh, you can walk on my property anytime you want. Bring your dogs. It's just, you know, enjoy it. It was so nice, um, the, the farm across the way. And so we're walking one day, and there was this tree that, what did she call it? Olympia. Ah. There's this tree over there. It is so big and so old. And it is just this beautiful, apparently uh, the, the Native American tribe. The Creek Indians. The Creek Indians, that's where they lived decades and decades and decades ago, long ago, but generations ago. But the tree is so beautiful and it's so big. It looks so majestic. Just standing in this clearing. It's it's not a pine tree. I don't know. It's, a, it's an oak. And it's she an said oak. It's over a hundred years old. It's just such a beautiful. Tree. It actually looked like something from Disneyland. Like it, it did. It looked like, like it wasn't real. It looked yeah. like uh, special effects people came and built it. Yeah. I mean that's how perfectly balanced this tree is. But anyway, he he dreams about this tree, and it grew to great heights and became super strong. It could be seen from anywhere on earth, and this is an interesting yeah. notation, yeah. which tells us that his kingdom literally did go as far as the known earth at that point. Everything about the tree was absolutely beautiful. It was food for everything, including bird, beasts, and humans. And obviously God is providing a picture of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom with the tree representing, most likely, Nebuchadnezzar. <clears throat> but it is interesting here as we keep going. So the watchers come in. Verse 12, I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and he said, chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. So he sees this watcher. Probably the way a polytheist would describe an angelic messenger. Something from another spiritual realm. You know, if you've ever talked with people who are heavily into the New Age, they will tell you 
all the things they see in the spiritual realm, the people, the beings they talk with, and all this kinds of stuff. And, and it's very, very common. If you just listen to them talk, it's kind of an interesting thing. But um, this is probably how Nebuchadnezzar viewed this watcher. His job... That's his word for it? Nebuchadnezzar's? Or is this Daniel no. calling it a watcher? No. Nebuchadnezzar is relating this. So Daniel wrote it down later. So I'm, I'm pretty sure this would be Nebuchadnezzar's word for it. Yeah. Okay. Earthly kings used watchmen. And, and, you know, it's a good question, Sam, because if we see the connection right here, they would use watchmen throughout their kingdom to keep their ears and eyes open for any trouble brewing. And they referred to them as watchmen. And the Bible refers to them as watchmen, too. So to, um, this, so to Nebuchadnezzar, this angelic messenger was simply a watchman or a watcher who was watching what's going on in the earth and reporting. But this isn't the first time in Scripture that the term watcher is used. Is it? No, no he's saying so. it's not. Oh, it's not. No, it's it not. isn't. I thought you were asking and so question. that has <coughs> specifically been pulled out and even some of the apocryphal writings such mm. as Enoch. You know, you have oh, watch, yeah, exactly. You have watchers there, yeah, too. Yeah, absolutely. And they're always angelic beings. They are. Or typically they are. They are. They are. You're right. Uh, the, the thing with Nebuchadnezzar, how much he saw this as an angel from God most high or not, we don't know. But he called it, to him, it was certainly an angelic spiritual being. Well, something about his dream, too, suggested that as well, that it was some kind of supernatural oh, yeah. being. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Not just a regular Joe. Yeah, you're right. Nebuchadnezzar simply believed this to be some kind of agent of the gods doing the same thing. So certainly it was an angelic, supernatural, some kind of otherworldly being. The watcher says to cut down the tree and remove the branches. So that's, that's going to happen. <clears throat> Leaving the stump likely means it would grow again. And I think this is interesting too. Verse 15, nevertheless, leave the stump and the roots in the earth. Bind it or bound with a band of iron and bronze. So why do you do that to a tree? You know, it's funny. I had um, Adam come out and cut a couple of my trees down here. And it's fascinating because, okay, the tree's gone, but there's a stump in the ground. A couple of weeks later, it starts putting up shoots. And, and so now I've got to go out and chop the shoots off or kill them or something, but that's just the way, because the tree's not dead, the, the stump is still there, the roots are still protected. So this band of iron and bronze would keep the top of it, the very top of it together so that it wouldn't dry, split, crack, and, and go into a bunch of different pieces. <clears throat> so leaving the stump meant it would grow again, and then uh, the tree cut down, as we learn, We'll learn this later, but it represented the king out of his mind. So it's pretty interesting here. God has determined, ultimately, that <laughs> this tree representing Nebuchadnezzar is going to go insane, out of his mind, for seven periods, whatever they happen to be. Most commentators believe there it's a period of seven years. And then all of a sudden he will wake to the reality of who God is which is really indicative, if you stop to think about it, of how every person comes to Christ. We're walking through life. 
blinders on, minding our own business, or maybe we have questions about God, or maybe we dabble in the New Age, or maybe we do this, that, or the other thing, or maybe we visit a church, and we're going along, and then all of a sudden God opens our eyes, opens our mind, and He pours some truth in there. And we go, wow, yeah, where'd that come from? This, in a nutshell, is what, what's happening to Nebuchadnezzar, is what happens to every person to some degree who goes through life as a non-Christian and then all of a sudden, inexplicably, for some reason, sees light, reaches the light, embraces the light, and becomes a Christian. Takes Christ into their heart. That's ultimately what happens. Ultimately what happens. So it would last for a period of seven periods. Periods, the same phrase means uh, years in Daniel 7.25, and it could mean that here. I think it does. Some people don't. Daniel 4.17 reveals the purpose for this judgment. Look at this. And this is interesting. Verse 17. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that what? The living may know, not just Nebuchadnezzar, the living may know that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever He will, and sets over it the lowest of men. Well, that seems to be happening today. Yeah. <laughs> in reality. So, it's funny though, isn't it? God's still in control. Yeah. That's, that's the amazing part. So, he wants to teach all people, and that's what he's doing here, he's teaching all people that God is the Most High, not a Most High, there's none higher, and he is sovereign over all the affairs of humankind, and there's some scriptures that kind of verify that and prove that out. So God tried to teach his complete sovereignty to Nebuchadnezzar in chapters 2 and 3. But the king didn't learn the lesson. He learned part of the lesson. Didn't learn all of it. Verse 17 states God's supremacy over all creation. And if you want to boil down, if you want to boil down what is the theme of Daniel, it's this. God is supreme over all of his creation. Period. He needs no help from us. He doesn't need our accolades. He doesn't need our help. He is supreme. He allows us to participate with Him. The king asks Daniel to interpret the meaning of the dream. And, of course, the soothsayers were unable to offer anything at all. Nothing. Buttoned lips. They had nothing to say. They should have been fired at that point. So next time we're going to deal with the interpretation of the second dream of King Nebuchadnezzar from Daniel from 14, 419 on. So, if you, look at, if you look ahead, we've got chapter 4, verses 19. Daniel explains the second dream. And it goes all the way down to verse 36. Because not only does he interpret the dream, but then we learn what actually happens to Nebuchadnezzar and then what the result of that is. So we'll see how far we get next time.